Good morning. So good to see everybody. My goodness, I think this is a record for opening weekend of deer season. This is great. <laughs> Glad y'all are here. I love it. I love deer hunting too, but I love being here with y'all as well. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 7. While you're doing that, let me just say that um, the amount of people that we um, wait off and having to sign up for a new members class, we've just about hit that. And so next week we're probably going to be announcing the next um, two Sundays that we'll be holding the, ne- the new the next new members class. So if you're one who is um, maybe kind of interested in in becoming a member of this church or finding out what it means to be a member or just finding out more about the church itself, then if you would go by the um, information center, the welcome center in the foyer after the service and and put your name on that list so we can get an idea of how many to prepare for and then we'll announce that. Um, Going through that class doesn't automatically make you a member, but in order to be a member, you have to go through those two classes, so um, be sure to go by there um, if you were interested in that. All right, Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 is an interesting chapter. Um, It can be broken up into four main parts. There are four separate accounts that are recorded here that all have something in common, and that is that... They each give us clues as to Jesus' purpose and mission. I'm going to give a brief synopsis of each of these, or really the first three parts, and then we're going to look at the, the last part together. But the first part is in the first 13 verses, and it's talking about a confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees, the religious leaders there. They asked him why his disciples didn't wash their hands before a meal like every other good Jew does. Now, the washing of hands that was done before each meal was something that originated in the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. But the Pharisees up to this point had made it into something other than what God originally intended for it to be. You see, the majority of rules and regulations that God gave through Moses were more about the health and safety of the people than it was about anything super spiritual. I mean, they were nothing more than a good father looking after his children. Take, for example, the rules concerning which kind of foods could and couldn't be eaten. The law, of course, was originally given when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And if you're living a nomadic life in the Middle Eastern desert, it would not be a good idea to make pork a regular part of your diet because pork is, spoils faster than just about any other meat. Uh, there was nothing inherently evil about pigs, but God forbid them from eating them simply to look out for them so they don't get food poisoning out in the desert. It would be thousands of years before the discovery of germs and how diseases spread. But God is the one who designed all that, and so he knew exactly how all that worked. And so that's why there were certain laws that that dealt with that kind of stuff, like how to deal with a dead corpse and handle it in a way that people didn't get sick and, and removing someone from the camp for a period of days if they had any type of issue of a bodily fluid. It wasn't that they were sinful or evil. It was simply because God didn't 
want those germs to spread and everybody get sick in the camp. That was the same case with the laws concerning washing hands before every meal. It's the same reason that we wash our hands today. Something that's interesting, washing hands before a meal really wasn't a thing. Um, it, It was a thing with the Jews. And then it was not a thing with anyone else until the discovery of germs. And that's when people actually started washing their hands again before a meal. But God knew all about germs before anybody had discovered that. But the Pharisees did make it into something spiritual. They made it into this thing that was a sign of godliness. As in, the more you washed your hands and the cleaner you were, the more spiritual you were. And so you can just imagine the ridiculousness that this led to. People spending inordinate amounts of time and going through these elaborate cleaning rituals just so everyone would think that they were super spiritual. And all God was wanting them to do is to not get sick. In the first part of Mark 7, Jesus calls the Pharisees out on this. And he calls them a bunch of hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 that says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then from verse 14 to verse 23, Jesus calls a crowd together and he explains something to them about all this, about everything that he had just said to the Pharisees. And he says something that would have completely turned their thinking upside down when he said, it's not what comes uh, into the mouth that defiles the man, but it's what comes out of him is what defiles him. Basically, he was saying, you can wash your hands all you want, but it does absolutely nothing to clean your heart. It's what's on the inside that matters a whole lot more than what's on the outside, than what you do on the outside, which is a revolutionary statement because these people have been living according to the law, which was all about what you did on the outside. And then the story shifts in verse 24. Jesus goes into the region of Tyre where his Fame precedes him. He can't go anywhere now without being recognized and drawing a crowd. Everyone has heard about the miracles he's been performing, including a Syrophoenician woman who falls at his feet and begs him to cast demons out of her daughter. Now, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, everything that he had done had been limited just to the Jewish people. They were God's chosen people, and so his message came to them first. But this woman isn't a Jew. She's a Gentile. She is not a part of God's people. But Jesus is so impressed by her humility and her faith that he tells her to go home, and she will find her daughter free of her demons. And that brings us to the fourth part of this, that fourth part that happens here in chapter 7. This starts in verse 31, and since this is the one that we are going to be primarily focusing on, let's all stand together as we read this and receive the word of the Lord today. Mark seven thirty-one. it says, And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. 
But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for your word, especially the truth here that you have for us in your word this morning. And God, I pray that, Lord, just like the words that you spoke to that man 2,000 years ago, Ifata, be opened. Lord, I pray that you would speak that over us this morning, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say, that you would open our eyes to be able to see you for who you are, the truth here in your word. Lord, that you would loosen our tongues to be able to declare your goodness and your truth with boldness, without fear. And God, you would do in us what you intend to do today. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All throughout Jesus' three-year ministry on earth, he was giving hints and clues as to what he was going to do, as to what his purpose was being there. And at first, these clues were pretty subtle, but as the time grew closer, he began to get more and more specific with it till he just there towards the end came out and said to them, I'm going to be handed over to the scribes and Pharisees and they're going to kill me. But the disciples still didn't get what he was saying. No one at that time understood what he was doing. But we now have the advantage of looking back and seeing and being able to identify a lot of these clues that he was kind of forecasting here and, and giving us. The seventh chapter of Mark is a great example of that. Because see, with the confrontation of the Pharisees, Jesus was kind of telegraphing the fact that what he was going to do was going to absolutely trump the old covenant law. It would be about something other than just following a bunch of rules and rituals. His explanation that came next gives us even more clues about that. This was going, what he was going to do was, was going to have something to do with the heart. It wasn't going to be about what people did on the outside. It was going to be about something that he was going to do on the inside. And, and like Jesus often did when he was teaching people, he was exposing their need for a Savior by telling them that the condition of their heart is what mattered most. Because by doing that, he was exposing the inability of the law to be able to save them. And so they would have realized that in order for their heart to be clean, they would need something other than the law to do that. And then with the Gentile woman, he was given another hint. In this case, it was that what he had was not going to be limited just to the Jewish people, but it was going to be for people of every nation and every race. And so what we're seeing here in chapter 7 so far is that Jesus' purpose would be greater than the law, it would deal with the heart, and it would be available to all types of people. And then with healing the, the, the blind man here, I believe he was showing that he would accomplish all of this in a very unconventional way. He would fulfill his purpose. He would accomplish his mission in ways that no one would expect it to be done. I mean, that's exactly what happened here. Jesus heals this man in a very unconventional way. 
he had already healed many people, but none of them had been done the way he did this one. Specifically in the book of Mark, before this, it talks about how he healed the crippled man who was let down through the hole in the roof simply by telling him to take up your pallet and walk. He heals a man's withered hand just by telling him to stretch out your hand, and he did, and he was healed. Uh, a woman was healed of constant bleeding just by reaching out and grabbing hold of his cloak, and she was completely healed. And then he raised Jairus's daughter just by taking her by the hand and telling her to get up. But none of that comes close to what he, the way that he did it here in this instance with this deaf man. There are a few things about this whole thing here that are different from the way he did things before. For one thing, in all the other instances, either the one being healed would come and plead and beg Jesus to heal them, or someone on their behalf would do that if they weren't able to do it themselves, but that's not the case here. This man is not coming to Jesus to ask him to heal him. The text says that the crowd brought the man to him and implored him to heal him. Now, the Greek word that's used here that's translated into implore, it is, it's more of a, a, a command than it is a pleading or a begging. They're telling Jesus to do this rather than asking or begging him to do it. It's like they were just wanting to see a miracle. I mean, this crowd had been worked up into a frenzy. Jesus is here, this man that we have been hearing so much about who's doing all these miraculous things, and they're coming and wanting to see the show. And there's no person there that he's doing anything with, and so it's like they're going, oh, we know the, the, the deaf man, the deaf man in town. Let's go get him. And so they bring him and push him in front of Jesus and go, here you go, Jesus, we found one. Do your trick. Heal him. That's basically what was going on here. This was completely different than any other way someone had been brought to Jesus for him to heal them. What they were expecting, the crowd here, was it to be done in a way that they had seen or heard about before. First, they would have expected him to do it right there in front of them so everyone could see, just like he had done all the other ones. They would have expected him to simply just lay a hand on him and touch him or just command for his ears to be open and nothing more. But Jesus doesn't give in to their expectations. First, he pulls the man aside. It's as if Jesus was going, I didn't come here to entertain y'all. And so he pulls the man aside where it's just the two of them, and he sticks his fingers in his ears and then touches spit to the man's tongue. Now try to put yourself in this man's shoes for just a minute. Here you are, completely unable to hear. You're deaf, and you can't talk very good. Now, I don't believe that his inability to speak very good was just because he was deaf. You know how a lot of deaf people also have trouble speaking because they can't hear what they're saying. I believe these are two separate instances because it said that the impediment of his tongue was removed and he could speak clearly. Uh, he didn't just heal his ears and then he was able to speak. Two separate issues. Um, so 
here this man is, and if you're here, you're sitting there, and you probably don't know what's going on at all. You probably don't even know who this Jesus is because the way that word spread about him back then was by people talking about it. It was word, mouth-to-mouth, word-to-word translation going on, and the news spreading out. They didn't have newspapers, so nobody is reading some article written about this Jesus. People were talking about him. A deaf person wouldn't have been able to hear this talk, and sign language wasn't a thing like it was today, and plus the fact that they treated handicapped people like the outcasts of society, so they would be the last to find out anything. So they placed this man before him, and he has no clue what is going on or why he is even there. Jesus takes you by the arm, pulls him away from everyone else, and now you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? And you eventually stop, and you see this strange man here take his fingers and stick them into your ears. And you see him spit and put it on your tongue. He had to be thinking, what the heck? Is going on here. And we don't know if he kind of pulled away from him or if he tried to fight it or if he was just completely stunned and in disbelief about what was happening to him. But all we know that in his mind he had to be going, This is weird. This is uncomfortable. This is gross. I have no idea why I'm suddenly put in this crazy situation. But then all of a sudden he starts hearing things that he has never heard before. And he starts expressing his excitement and what he is saying. He's saying these words clearly without any trouble at all. And he is completely healed. But why did Jesus do it this way? Because, I mean, we know he could have done it in other ways. Because he had, had done it in other ways before. It wasn't the only way he could have healed him. But for some reason, he chose to do it this unconventional way. Why? Well, all I can say is that it's because in his infinite wisdom, he knew that this was the best way. For some reason, it was the best way. It may not have been the only way. May not have been the expected way, but in this particular instance, for this man, this was the best way for him to accomplish what he wanted to do in this man's life. When Jesus began his ministry, he announced that he was the promised Messiah, that scripture had been prophesying for several hundred years. The people knew that a Savior was coming, and they had certain expectations of what that was going to look like. They expected it to be the salvation of their physical nation. They expected political freedom. They expected uh, to be freed out from under the oppression of the Roman government rather than the oppression of sin. They expected the establishment of an earthly kingdom rather than uh, a spiritual one. But Jesus didn't meet any of their expectations. And when some of them began realizing that what he was doing did have something to do with their relationship with God, they would have had expectations on, on what that was going to entail based on their previous experience. 
like having to make some type of sacrifice or, or pay some kind of penance or maybe a new list of rules that they were going to have to follow. But if it had to do with our relationship with God being right, then I expect that to be some kind of hoops that I got to jump through again, just like it always has been before. But Jesus did something totally unexpected. He was the sacrifice. He paid the penance. He fulfilled all the commands. And then in order for his movement to be able to continue successfully, one would expect that in order for that to be most effective, it would probably have to be done with some type of organized structure of a centralized hierarchy of professionals who knew what they were doing in order to carry this thing out and let it spread. But it actually spread like wildfire in the most unexpected way. It was just a spirit-empowered movement that was available to anyone who would just believe. You didn't have to have a certain education. You didn't have have a certain training, a specific title, or anything. Just faith, and you are empowered with the spirit to go out and, and demonstrate the kingdom in operation, and it spread like crazy. No movement has ever spread the way that Christianity did in this most unconventional way and continues to happen today. Amen. All right, so what does all this mean for us this morning? Well, first it means that Jesus is still all about dealing with our hearts. Just like the people back then, we tend to focus on everything that's going on on the outside while Jesus is focused on what's going on on the inside. And we think things like, well, if I could just have a better marriage, if I could just have a better job, if I could just quit this habit, if I could just be healed of this sickness, then life would be right. But Jesus is going, what you need is not a change of your situation. You need a change of heart. You need a heart change. And he's the only one who can do that. As Christians, we know that salvation is a matter of the heart, but we tend to lose sight of the fact that that continues to be the primary matter all throughout our Christian life. Growing in Christ and growing in spiritual maturity is all about these heart changes. And everything that God leads us to and leads us through, he does because he knows in his infinite wisdom that that is the absolute best way for him to accomplish those heart changes. It may not be the only way he can do it, but for each one of us, he knows that is the best way And even when we realize our hearts need change and we tend to have certain expectations on how that change is going to come about, and that usually revolves around some type of church service or program or or something like that where we think, I just need a big encounter with God during a powerful church service, and that's going to get my heart changed. And yes, people have been radically changed in environments and situations like that. But just like we see in Mark chapter 7, God's way of doing things is usually not at all what we expect. Sometimes we'll pray, Lord, get me out of this situation so that my heart can change. And God's going, I led you to that situation 
so that your heart can change. You might wonder, well, how does that work? Well, let's say the difficulty you're going through, it could be anything, struggle in your marriage, loss of a job, conflict with a coworker, whatever. Here's how you would apply Mark chapter 7. You'd first think, okay, I know God wants to change my heart. I know that's his purpose, his goal in me. And I know that he is involved in every single detail of my life. And I know that he does things in unexpected ways. Therefore, he must be using this situation, as difficult as this is, to show me something about my heart that he wants to change. And then you submit to what God is doing rather than fighting it or trying to figure out any way you can to get out of it. And then you identify what that situation is doing in you. What kind of reaction has this thing been causing? What are you feeling about whatever it is that you're in? Maybe it's fear. And God's using this to expose the fear that has been crippling you for so long that he wants to set you free from. Maybe it's anger that's rising up in you. Where is that anger coming from? You know, most of the time, anger is directly tied to fear. They usually go hand in hand. But God wants to set you free of that anger that has just been eaten at you for so many years. Maybe it's self-centeredness. I know that for me and Carol, the first part of our marriage, the difficulty we went through the first part of our marriage was a huge eye-opener to me of just how incredibly selfish I was. Because for 25 years up to that point, I really didn't have anyone I had to think about other than myself. Not at this kind of level. And when two broken people come into close proximity like that, in that kind of intimate setting, it causes some friction. It causes some conflict. Sparks start to fly. And that conflict and that tension caused some things to rise up in my heart. And God showed me just how incredibly self-centered I was. And so I had to lay that down before him. And I can tell you right now, the person I am 20 years after our marriage is so much different than the person I was before we got married because of those heart changes that God has been doing in me. Change for the better, okay? It's, it's a good change. <laughs> Even though I'm bald and I lost all the color in my beard, it, it's a good change. <laughs> my marriage didn't do that. Ministry <laughs> did that. There are all kinds of things that sin and this broken world does to our heart. And whatever damage has been done to our heart on the inside always has an effect on everything that we do on the outside. And God leads us into situations to expose those things that keep us from living the life that he created us to live, that keep us from experiencing that abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give And he doesn't expose those things in order to shame us and make us feel guilty about it. He exposes them in order to heal us and to set us free and to lead us into pure joy. 
That's one of the reasons I believe that he created us for relationship, not just to remain an island unto ourselves. Because if we just stay to ourselves and not allow anyone to really get to know us, then those things in our heart usually stay hidden. They don't get dealt with. But being involved in relationship with other broken people, like a marriage, causes those things to come to the surface. God uses relationship to change our hearts. And many times he'll put us into situations that force us into relationship. Because we're desperate for an answer to something that God withholds from us so that we will go to someone else. See if they have the answer. See if they have any insight into what's going on here. You know, our own issues a lot of times are the hardest ones for us to see. Sometimes we need people in our lives that we can trust who love us and can point these things out. Or if we don't need them to point them out, we need somebody to remind us of how they can get fixed. To keep preaching the gospel to us when we forget about some of the truths of what's available to us in Jesus. Around this time of year, or a little bit sooner, is at my house the time where we get out deer rifles and start sighting them in, making sure they're shooting straight before deer season starts. And whichever gun my kids are going to be shooting that year, I let them shoot it. And if it's not hitting the center of the bullseye, if it's off, I teach them how to make the adjustments in order to get it back on target again. We can think of this message today of God getting our sights back on target to where they need to be because some of us have just been looking at anything other than what really matters. And some of you have been so focused on what's going on on the outside, you're completely missing what God's trying to do in here on the inside. You've been focusing on the symptoms when God's all about fixing the cause You don't have a drinking problem. You have a heart problem that led to the drinking. You don't have a cheating problem. You have a heart problem that caused you to look for other areas and to start cheating. You don't have a pornography problem. You've got a heart problem that caused you to believe in the lies that pornography tells you is what's going to satisfy. It's all about what's going on. In here, what we do, what happens in here affects what we do out here. Bottom line is this if you belong to Christ, He is right now in the process of changing your heart in order to mold you more into His image. And what you have to know is that He does things in very unexpected ways. And he does them because he knows that is the absolute best way to accomplish his purpose in you. It may not be the way he's accomplishing that in somebody else. But he's doing it because it's the best way for him to accomplish it in you. And if you would just submit to that and trust him in it. You can be one of the ones that says in verse 37 there. They were utterly astonished saying, He has done all things well. Let's pray.
Lord, I know that you are opening the eyes of some in here to see part of the purpose in the struggle that they've been going through here lately. Lord, their eyes are open now to the the things in their heart that you're exposing and, and wanting to change and wanting them to lay before you. God, I know that even when we realize the problems that we have, even when we know what's wrong with our heart, we think that we've got to do something in order to fix it, in order to change it. Lord, there's no way we can do that. So God, I pray for for those of us who, who know what's going on here, knows what needs to change, we'd lay it at your feet. Just like the Gentile woman in this chapter, she fell at your feet and begged you to change her daughter. Lord, that we would fall at your feet and ask you to change our heart. Lord, that you would get our eyes focused where they need to be. Primarily on you and not on our circumstances. Not on someone else that we think is our enemy. Lord, your word says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces that are at work around us in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle we're in, not a physical one. Lord, I pray that you would get our minds right and our focus centered where it needs to be on target. Lord, that we'd learn to trust you no matter what situation it is, no matter how weird it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how unconventional it may be, that we would just trust you to change us. Lord, I know we also get so focused on you changing somebody else Lord, this morning we say change us. Do the work that only you can do, the work that the law was incapable of doing. You accomplished at the cross and the grave. Would you come and do it through your Holy Spirit right now? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.